Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. I can't believe I made it to Devon. They said you'd get here last night. I've been waiting. Yeah, the train took forever. Well, anyway, here you are. G-Force. Fanny. Excellent, Foster. I knew you could do it. Blitz ball? Yeah. I mean, you get all the athletic prizes if I be Brinkley. You wouldn't mind, would you? I hate my heart out. I'd kill myself out of jealous envy. I'd hate you forever, absolutely. Time for truth. Episode number 63, A Separate Piece by John Knowles. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I just realized this episode comes out in February, so I guess we will have to talk about shipping in this episode. Oh, shipping. Oh, it's all surfing. <laughs> Interesting shipping in this one because it's 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 it's, a, it's more of a of a tension more than it is actually a sh- but we will be shipping people. We will, we will. So this podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether it's worthy of its reputation and is it required reading. So I'm leading us this time to answer that question that has been on all of our minds and will always be there for all of time. What happens when you put two boys in a tree and a limb shakes? I don't know. We'll find out. But along with me on the ride, I don't know if he would be the shaker or the shooken. It's Tom Panarese. Hi. (laughs) Now, Tom, you almost stood me up tonight. I just want to call you out right here, right now. Yeah, I got my calendar dates mixed up, and I thought we were recording a week later than we actually are. But I think we'll be okay. <laughs> I think so. Your circadian rhythm was off. Yeah, so it's we. I I missed an entire week of work because of snow days. So I think that's what really did it. <laughs> it's like I'm still in vacation ahead. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. So. 
Yeah, my bad. No worries, no worries. Did you have a nice New Year's? Did you make any resolutions regarding literature that you would like to share? I'm trying to think. I'm still working on my I want to read my, you know, my my pile, right? It's an uh, one resolution that I'm uh, or or something that I kind of it, it's an odd one to say, but I actually have thought of like slowing down the amount of reading that I do or just because I feel that sometimes like when I look at my re- my my list of what I've read over the course of a year, at least as far as novels are concerned, I wonder if I'm going too fast because there are certain novels that I've read or certain books that I've read. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember reading it, and I don't remember enough of what happened in it until I go back and I just, like, read a summary, and then it all comes back to me. So I'm like, am I reading through these too fast, or am I too distracted? I might be just too distracted by work and everything else. Now I just, I just want to keep reading this stuff, but I think I want to savor some of it a little bit more and and really try to stick to the stuff that is, like, right in front of me or that I can get from a library. I'm really trying to not buy too much, the exceptions being if somebody gives me a gift card. <laughs> to a bookstore i will spend the gift card to the bookstore but i'm I'm trying not to i'm trying to like i have so many books that i haven't read i'm like you know what maybe i'm just gonna work the way my way through stuff or i will go to the library or the school which is where i got this book actually i I, it's a perma bound hardcover edition uh that i got out of the um storage room at my high school so (laughs) i didn't have to pay for this it seems like there's a lot of opportunity to just like go down or go, you know, in the stacks of your library mm-hmm. or somewhere else and then just pick up books that haven't been used for years. So they're trying yeah. to get rid of them. But you can find some real gold in those. Like I found they were giving away stuff and I got a couple Shakespeare plays that I had mm. never read. And it's just like, this is great. I don't have to go out and buy them now. I've got some <laughs> Shakespeare plays. So thank you. But yeah, it's kind of fun that you can find free gems right where you are. Yeah, it's it's really nice in the summer because, you know, we are trying to, you know, we're always trying to reorganize the book room where they're always moving it around. Yeah, so it's like, oh, yeah, take a copy of some stuff. And you're right. Some of it is like there's copies of Steinbeck and Hemingway and all these other authors that haven't been used in years, right? And they're just sitting there. Shakespeare's a great, actually a really great example of that. And the other one is the school library where they're like, do you want to take any books out for the summer? And I'm like, Sure. So I'm walking home with like an entire bag full of books. I have that problem at the public library where like you're going through books and some of these books probably haven't been checked out in a long time. You know, the expression, your eyes are bigger than your stomach when it comes to food. Yeah, that's basically me with books at a library or at work or something where it's like I don't have to pay for these. I'll check all of the books out. So (laughs) I've been doing that since I was a kid. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Sometimes I get into trouble, which I always post on Twitter when I, when this happens is I'll put things on hold at the library and oftentimes I'll be in a backlog with them because they're like popular or they're new. So I'm just waiting. And then I would expect them to come in like waves, like one at a time. But, or I should say ripples, but actually they do come in waves because all of a sudden I get three in at once and then it's overwhelming because <laughs> I don't like to read new. I like to just read it and give it back right away. But when, mm-hmm. yeah, so sometimes I get into, into a pickle there, but, yeah. oh man. Well, here we are. I think we like books more than these two kids. Well, <laughs> at least, yeah, no, I would probably say that because Jean 
even though he was smart and academic, he he compared himself to I can't remember who that character was that did not that actually liked learning, but Gene didn't. And then Finney, of course, mm-hmm. didn't like anything but sports. But yeah, we're gonna be doing some who a separate piece. Yeah, this is. I knew that it was on your list for a while. I, in a lazy way, I knew that this month of prepping for it was going to be a bit tight so i wanted a a smaller novel and one that i had read before so that's why Mm -hmm. i chose it just to give a peek behind the curtain but what is your history with this schoolboys novel okay well much like you had the rory gilmore reading list for years and years and you finally finished that whole thing and i had a list that i'm still working my way through which is i'm (laughs) i've been doing this for the five years that we've had this podcast beyond that, I'm rereading the books that I read in high school and junior high school, at least what I can remember. And this was one of them. I was assigned this in 11th grade, Mrs. Van Doren's English 11 class. I remember enjoying it, but I didn't, I had, we had read it too soon after the catcher in the rye in my mind. If I think that, cause we read the catcher in the rye and this in the same year and we'd already read catcher and so this was just it was like oh it's another novel about like you know uh, you know and a lot of people i knew liked this book when we read it so it wasn't that like we all hated it but i don't think it has as much of an impact on me because of the other book so putting some distance between the two was kind of cool but yeah no it was it was and and i hadn't read it since uh since then to be completely honest with you and this is the only book by john knowles that i've ever actually read too so it's been about 30 years okay yeah, so this was on my Rory Gilmore's reading list, and I remember finding it at a used bookstore that is up the street from a historical theater that I often go to with my mother when, I, when I'm visiting. And, uh, yeah, I bought it and, and read it then. That was probably several years ago. But mm-hmm. it is my former department chair's favorite novel. And so Whoa. sometimes he'll occasionally he, – he'll say, like, that's my favorite novel. But we often do a mud run together. And there have been a couple years where <laughs> there's this one part where there's a 4 by 4 beam and – I guess it'd be like four by four by four, but then 12 feet long across a stream. So you're supposed to, you know, balance your way over that. And so sometimes, not to me, but when we did it as a foreign language department, he would put his foot on <laughs> on it, on the beam, and he would like say, you know, I wonder what would happen if I shook this. And I would yell at him because I, of course, understood the reference, but I was the only one of our team <laughs> that had understood that he was referencing a separate piece and like trying to get someone to fall in the stream. We're supposed to be on a team. So I always think of him and those moments, and that's not the only time that he'll do it, but if there's like any situation where for whatever reason he's someone's climbing he'll make a mention of that which i don't know why his mind is going there but (laughs) it it seems to be ever present and i i forgot how it ended because as i was reading it i actually like audibly gasped Mm. when the i would well I was looking at something and it said that the climax is the falling out of the tree. And I thought, that's really interesting. I would consider the climax him falling down the marble staircase. But I guess we can always talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I I had forgotten that that I had thought that Phineas and we're going to and it's not really a spoiler. You're going to spoil the plot anyway. I thought Phineas died at the fall from the tree. I had forgotten about 
the whole for some reason the second half of the book i totally forgotten about it's like and then i came back and said, oh yeah the marble staircase and everything like, i just i hadn't remembered that part of it but i distinctly remember the the scene in the tree so yeah yeah and i just didn't remember that he died <laughs> so that was i remembered that man but it yeah it was it was unfortunate so it was good to revisit because i had remembered beats but now and again i think i spoke of this before when we were talking last time i guess Mm -hmm. maybe it was or two times ago that depending on where we are in our life when we read something you know we get new things out of it so i think you know reading it might have been 10 years ago, I don't know. And now I, I, I think perhaps I had a better understanding. I was looking more deeply at relationships between adults and the kids or kids and kids. And then, of course, the war just being ever present, even though they're in the U.S. and they're not involved in the war yet, was was really interesting. So so I'm glad I, I read it again. I'm glad I chose to give myself a pat on the back. Okay, well... I shall give the history of Mr. Knowles and then a little bit about the book and then I shall do the plot synopsis. Okay. So Knowles was born on September 16, 1926 in Fairmont, West Virginia, the son of James M. Knowles, a purchasing agent from Lowell, Massachusetts, and Mary Beatrice Shea Knowles from Concord, New Hampshire. His father was a coal company executive which earned an income that afforded the family a comfortable living. As a youth, Knowles would remark that he could write just as well as the stories from the Saturday Evening Post. Knowles attended St. Peter's High School in Fairmont from 38 to 40 before he continued at Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire, and graduated in 1945. Following his time at Phillips Exeter, Knowles spent eight months serving in the U.S. Army Air Force at the end of World War II. He graduated from Yale University as a member of the class of 49, At Yale, Knowles contributed stories to Campus Humor magazine, The Yale Record, and served on the board of the Yale Daily News during his sophomore, junior, and senior years, notably as editorial secretary during his senior year. He was a record-holding varsity swimmer during his sophomore year. Again, let us just point attention to the fact that his life is mirrored in some of this work. So, Mm -hmm. there you go. Early in Knowles' career, he wrote for the Hartford Current and was assistant editor for Holiday Magazine. With encouragement from Thornton Wilder, he concurrently began writing novels. And he died on November 29, 2001, near Fort Lauderdale, Florida. A separate piece was first published in London by Secker and Warburg in 59. Published in New York in 60 by Macmillan, it is his most celebrated work. The novel is based upon Knowles' experiences at Phillips Exeter Academy. The Devon School, the book setting, is a thinly veiled fictionalization of Exeter, with both campus and town easily recognizable. Although the plot is not autobiographical, elements of the novel stem from personal experience, including Knowles' membership in a secret society and his sustaining of a foot injury while he jumped from a tree during society exercises. And I doubt the secret society is, in fact, that, you know, the, the suicide. What was that? The suicide? Summer pack? suicide. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in his essay, A Special Time, A Special Place, Knowles wrote, quote, the only elements in a separate piece which were not in that summer were anger, violence, and hatred there was only friendship athleticism and loyalty end quote the secondary character 
Finney or Phineas, is the friend of the main character, Gene. Knowles has stated that he modeled Finney on David Hackett from Milton Academy, whom he met when both attended a summer session at Phillips Exeter Academy. Hackett was a friend of Robert F. Kennedy, under whom he later served in the U.S. Justice Department. A student, Phineas Sprague, lived in the same dormitory as Knowles during the summer session of 43 and may have inspired the character's name. In his memoir, Palimpsest, Gore Vidal acknowledged that he and Knowles concurrently attended Phillips Exeter Academy with Vidal, Vidal, two years ahead. <laughs> Vidal said, stated that Knowles told him that the character Brinker was based on him. Quote, we have been friends for many years now, Vidal said, and I admire the novel that he based on our school days, a separate piece. The novel was based on his earlier short story, Phineas, which was published in the May 1956 issue of Cosmopolitan. I guess that was before it became a girly magazine. It was <laughs> Knowles' first published novel, of course, and became his best-known work. The novel has been adapted into two films of the same name, the first starring Parker Stevenson as Gene and John Hale as Finney, with the screenplay by Fred Siegel and John Knowles, was released in 72, and then the second, directed by Peter Yates, with the screenplay by Wendy Kesselman, was released in 2004. I have not seen either of these, have you? No, I have not. Okay. I considered watching one, and then time got away from me, mm. slash... I didn't have as much interest <laughs> as I did the book. Yeah. So, okay. Any thoughts before I go on to the synopsis? No, not not, not really. Although the the thinly veiled Exeter references and that sort of thing, it's very a lot of writers do that. You know, <laughs> you ever think about that? Like how many writers have written semi autobiographical pieces or taken things from their real life and made them the setting or whatever? So, um, I can totally see that. I mean, write what you know. Yeah, yeah, and and so it's and it's not even a knock. I'm like, yeah, it was just sort of like, of course, like you know, and yeah. it's an acknowledgement, I guess you could yeah. say. Okie dokie. So here's the plot synopsis. Gene Forrester is a quiet intellectual student at the Devon School in New Hampshire. During the summer session of 42, he becomes close friends with his daredevil roommate Finney, whose innate charisma consistently allows him to get away with mischief. Finney prods Gene into making a dangerous jump out of a tree into a river, and the two start a secret society based on this ritual. Gene gradually begins to envy Finney's astonishing athletic abilities, manifested in Finney's breaking the school swimming record on his first try. He thinks that Finney, in turn, envies his superior academic achievements, and he suspects that his friend has been taking steps to distract him from his studies. Gene's suspicions transform into resentful hatred, but he nevertheless carefully maintains an appearance of friendship. Gene realizes that he has been grievously mistaken about the existence of any rivalry between them when, one day, Finney expresses a sincere desire to see Gene succeed. While still in a state of shock from the force of his realization, he accompanies Finney to the tree for their jumping ritual. When Finney reaches the edge of the branch, Gene's knees bend, shaking the branch and causing Finney to fall to the bank and shatter his leg. The tragedy is generally considered an accident, and no one thinks to blame Gene... I don't know if that's necessarily true, especially not Finney. But when the doctor tells Gene that Finney's athletic days are over, Gene feels a piercing sense of guilt. He goes to see Finney and begins to admit his part in Finney's fall, but the doctor interrupts him, and Finney is sent home before Gene gets another chance to confess. 
The summer session ends, and Gene goes home to the South for a brief vacation. On his way back to school, he saw Cy Finney's house and explains to his friend that he shook the branch on purpose. Finney refuses to listen to him, and Gene rescinds his confession and continues on to school. There, Gene attempts to avoid true athletic activity by becoming assistant manager of the crew team, but he feuds with the crew manager and quits on day one, might I add. <laughs> World War II is in full swing, and the boys at Devon are all eager to enlist in the military. Brinker Hadley, a prominent class politician, suggests to Gene that they enlist together, and Gene agrees. That night, however, he finds Finney has returned to school. He consequently abandons his plans to enlist, as does Brinker. Finney expects Gene to take his place as a school sports star now that he is injured. When Gene protests that sports no longer seem important in the midst of the war, Finney declares that the war is nothing but a conspiracy to keep young men from eclipsing the older authorities. Finney tells Gene that he once had aspirations to go to the Olympics, and Gene agrees to train for the 1944 Olympics in his place. All the boys are surprised when a gentle, nature-loving boy named Leper Lepelier becomes the first one in their class to enlist. Gene and Finney go on training, shielded within their private vision of world events. During a winter carnival, which Finney has organized, a telegram arrives for Gene from Leper, saying that he has, quote, escaped and desperately needs Gene to come to his home in Vermont. Gene goes to Vermont and finds that Leper has gone slightly mad. Leper, who was present at Finney's accident, reveals that he knows the truth about what happened. Leper's ranting frightens Gene and makes him anxious about how he himself might react to military life. He runs away back to Devon. When Brinker hears of what has happened to Leper, he laments in front of Finney that Devon has already lost two of its potential soldiers, Leper and the crippled Finney. Gene, afraid that Finney will be hurt by this remark, tries to raise his spirits by getting him to discuss his conspiracy theory again, but Finney now denies the war, only ironically. Brinker, who has harbored suspicions that Gene might have been partly responsible for Finney's accident, wants to prove or disprove them definitively. He organizes an after-hours tribunal of schoolboys and has Gene and Finney summoned without warning. The boys on the makeshift tribunal question the two about the circumstances surrounding the fall. Finney's perceptions of the incident remain so blurred that he cannot speak conclusively on the matter. Gene maintains that he doesn't remember the details of it. The boys now bring in Leper, who was sighted earlier in the day skulking about the bushes, and Leper begins to implicate Gene. Finney declares that he does not care about the facts and rushes out of the room. Hurrying on the stairs, he falls and breaks his leg again. Gene sneaks over to the school's infirmary that night to see Finney, who angrily sends him away. Gene wanders this campus until he falls asleep under the football stadium. The next morning, he goes to see Finney again, takes full blame for the tragedy, apologizes, and tries to explain that his action did not arise from hatred. Finney accepts these statements, and the two are reconciled. Later, as the doctor is operating on Finney's leg, some marrow detaches from the bone and enters Finney's bloodstream, going directly to his heart and killing him. Gene receives the news with relative tranquility. He feels that he has become a part of Finney and will always be with him. The rest of the boys graduate and go off to enlist in relatively safe branches of the military. Gene reflects on the constant enmity that plagues the human heart, a curse from which he believes that only Finney was immune. Oh, and thus ends a separate piece. <laughs> well, Tom, the first question, of course, sometimes the most important question, did you like this novel? I did it was another novel that i liked when i was 16 when i first read it or 15 or whatever anyway at any rate when i was a teenager <laughs> liked again and got a lot more out of it this time because i you know 29 30 years ago i don't remember 
what we discussed about the novel in class. And I was picking up a lot on a lot of different subtexts, both with both with the war and with the relationship between these two characters that I don't know if I completely picked up on when I was 16 years old or whatever. And I don't know if our, I don't know if our teacher brought it up either. And, you know, it's kind of I, I know it's a novel that if you think about like current English class curriculums has probably fallen out of favor because it's just a little bit older, you know, that you have a couple of white male protagonists. So it's not like exactly, you know, going to set anybody's world on fire. But I think novels about relationships between boys who are friends need as much and, and, and can show that friendship in a way that's emotional in some way or another and realistic. I think that's a, I think that's a very healthy thing to have. So that's why I kind of, that was one of the things I, I picked up on this. I'm like, oh yeah, this is a really, it's just a really healthy show of emotion between two boys, which you don't get a lot of in our popular culture or you don't get enough of where I think we might be getting more and more, but again, it kind of, it, it fights, it pushes back a little bit about our kind of idea of what masculinity or manliness should be in some cases. So, yeah. And I think it has all types. Like it, it certainly has a, a huge, spectrum of types of men Mm -hmm. in this novel which i think is really interesting because you might have the bullyish type of people or like the jerks yeah like brinker probably would be that or Mm -hmm. the guy that was the crew captain yeah the because they got into like an out they got into a flat-out fight yes yeah he punched gene or whatever so yeah, and yeah, I think Gene gave it back. And, and then someone like Lepre Lepelier, who who is, I you know, a sensitive, nature loving, mm-hmm. as they said, kind of guy. So he is, he reminds me a little bit of another kind of boys going off to war novel, All Quiet on the Western Front. The character of Dietering, who is the one who, because uh, there's like two. There's Joseph Bem and there's Dietering, and Bem is the first one to die in out of that class and he was you know by all for all intents and purposes he was the one who didn't want to go he kind of got swept up and pressured into going and then Dietering's the one who's who's always homesick he's always and and he ends up deserting the army at the end of the war because he just spots like cherry blossoms or apple blossoms and and, you know and then kind of cracks and goes AWOL and we that's the last we ever hear of him and so that's that particular character of, of I see the, those particular characters in, in Leper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to answer my own question, I too enjoy this novel, which is one reason why I picked it, certainly because I felt like I could talk about it and I thought, oh, it's been a little while. It'd be nice to, to read it. Yeah. But it has it's almost timeless in a way, which I'll, I'll ask that question. But of course, it's so cemented in a particular period. But it's something mm-hmm. I think that almost transcends time as well. And just really interesting characters. So, I, I yeah, I, I recommend it, but we, we're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess going off of that, though, do you think that this novel could potentially work without the background of war? Or does war have to be here in order for a lot of the tension to be present and how the adults are acting towards the kids and then, yeah, just a lot of the stuff that's going on? I think on some level war or some sort of larger 
conflict national issue that they're all being drawn into is really important because it does provide a they're at a they're at an elite private school you know phillips exeter is like one of the most prestigious private boarding schools in the country you know so that's the bubble that they're in and because they're in the boarding school so they're not going home every day and finding out like their older brother was called up or whatever the bubble has more staying power than say like the suburban bubble I grew up in where if something in the real world was happening, I might actually find it at home because maybe it was directly affecting my parents and I saw my parents every night. So I think it's necessary. I think, I think the setting is necessary. I think you need to set up this, a bubble of a place where you really can be protected. There's a story that this reminds me of that came out later, came out in the mid two thousands or the early two thousands was a novella that Stephen King wrote. Um, it's the title the title story to his novella collection called hearts in Atlantis. It's, it's about a bunch of college kids and they, the hearts, they, they, they establish a, a, a place like in their dorm or whatever they refer to it as Atlantis. And they're constantly playing the card game of hearts. And that's where the title comes from. But the thing that is looming over them is Vietnam, but they're in a, they're at a nice Northeastern school, right? So, so you have your bubble and the, and the, the world is kind of pressing in and pressing in and pressing in and pressing in. And whether it's world war two or Vietnam, um, in, in high school, in World War II, you turn 17, 18, and then you're probably going to get drafted. And a lot of them are enlisting because it's very possible that they'll have a better chance of surviving if they enlist, right? Um, mm-hmm. With college in Vietnam, it was pretty much like you could defer your draft by going to college. So as in this in Stephen King's novella, as more and more of them start to flunk out the war starts to claim them in some way or another. And I've read this 20 years ago, so I'm kind of going off the top of my head. But so like that idea that you have the bubble, but the war is kind of pressing into that bubble and the bubble's going to pop. I think something needs to be there to put that pressure on them in their isolated little bubble of friendship and high school hijinks and, and things like that. So it could be, I don't know. A war is really good because it affects everybody, especially of a certain age group. So, you know, but it could be we could change the setting or the time frame and just have another war out there. But World War II is a good one, though, for it, if you think about it, because it's the one that everybody said they wanted to fight. Right. You know, that's the good war to borrow a a book title from uh, Studs Terkel. So so to see resignation about it to see a little bit of, of of tension about it it's it's a little bit mm-hmm. different than what you're expecting from uh knowing about what we know about the greatest generation etc Ooh, yeah and then timeline wise was the u.s in the war yet this is 42 right yes. yeah so we would have been we would have been in the war because Pearl Harbor is December 7th, 1941. So we are – if we're we're not in full ground troops on the ground combat in the European theater. It's a little bit different in the in the Pacific because we don't we don't put troops on the ground in, in, in continental Europe until 44. But um, we certainly had presence in the Air Force over there, you know, because uh, – for instance, my grandfather was a um, was a Turk gunner on a B-17, doing doing bombing runs over over uh, over Germany, 42, 43, you know, et cetera. So when he was serving in the war, so um, so yeah, we we had a presence, but we were still in the sort of ramping up, and by within a year or so that that of this book, 
you have more and more and more people going overseas. But I think if I'm not mistaken, if I'm reading this, if I'm if I'm misremembering this, please let me know. I believe Gene says he never actually sees combat because by the time they had him combat ready through training, the war was over. Yeah. yeah so I was trying to think, am I remembering that correctly? Or was I reading a different book recently where somebody was talking about that? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'd, yeah, I just wondered because it would be ironic. Well, the tension of will they, won't mm -hmm. they, not only for the students, but also for America herself. Yeah. And of course, America was kind of dancing around it as well. And, yeah. and Churchill, you know, trying to get aid and everything mm -hmm. from Roosevelt. But yeah, I, I feel like if it's not war, it's got to be something that is certainly all encompassing. Mm -hmm. And that not only pierces the bubble of Devon, but the the town as well, because there's that scene where they have that snowstorm and there's basically like a troop transport ready to go on the train. And so they get the, the students to dig them out and everything. And that was kind of the first moment, I think, of those young men looking at you know their future selves mm -hmm. and potentially what they could be and everything yeah. so yeah it's got to be something almost like this cloud of oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know what the right word attention i guess yeah. you're right to say that or, or just like foreboding and something that everyone feels not only the students but the adults as well and creates this various forms of emotion too because there's dread there's you know pity and and sadness for you know these young men that would have to fight there's excitement and mm -hmm. wanting to pledge your life to your country and everything so it's just like it's really complicated i don't know what else could do that besides war yeah and i think i if i if i'm, try, I'm trying to remember high school correctly here we might have talked about how talked about how the war is a metaphor for adulthood in general because this is a loss of innocence novel mm. but some people come out of school and go to adulthood and they're fine and they succeed and they fly and everything and and even then even going into it they're they're fed so much that they're just like oh I'll always be fine so there's never any trepidation about going in so there's no pressure and then some people are complete emotional wrecks going through most of their adult life um high but the war i think makes it more tangible and makes it urgent and i think for the reader it it really feels it all the everything lines up because, like, what are you scared of? Oh, you have something to be scared of. You have something to be worried about, or this is hanging over it. It's like, um, and I, like I said, World War II, it's a great example of it because we don't think of World War II in this way very often, you know? We don't think of either of the world wars to be honest. Like, you know, the the first world war, people were marching off with their heads held high, and they it wasn't until they got into the stalemate that was the first couple of years that where they were that they started to realize, oh my God, this is awful. And World War Two, you know, our impression of it is like, you know, we're gonna fight, you know, we're gonna defeat the Nazis because you, that's what you do to Nazis. You defeat them and you destroy them and you punch them and you kill them. Sorry for getting political. And then with like Vietnam. It, like I said, bring it back to there. Like I mentioned the Stephen King story or like uh, George Lucas's American Graffiti, like where Vietnam's kind of hanging over that entire movie. And, and then there's a brief mention it at the end. But there's sort of a this is the last night of our innocence aspect to that film. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And and th this this has this kind of has similar uh, similar threads running through it that like, you know, the. I looked, I, I grabbed the page. Now I can't find where I put my copy of the book. Oh, here it is. The, 
super suicide society of the summer session. <laughs> it, that, that's very much the like, this is our last great adventure. This is us. You know, this is our last. This is boyhood. And this is the end of boyhood. And, and I think, like I said, the war really punctuates that in a way that I think really, really works. Oh, boy. Let's see where to go. Where to go from here? <laughs> yeah, we went deep pretty quickly. <laughs> we did. Well, I just, yeah, the setting is, is I think, certainly important. And the, mm -hmm. the title is equally important. And the phrase separate piece pops up a couple times, mm -hmm. I would say. I have noted in these questions 28, and so this was during the Winter Festival. 128. I don't know if our copies are the same. Actually, I feel like ours might Maybe. have might have looked similar. It says, it wasn't the cider which made me surpass myself. What was he doing exactly? Um, this was one of those things that was going on with the, the Winter Carnival. Yeah, they were, they were, they were drinking. Yes. At one point. And then um, Phineas, this is right after Phineas suggests um, doing something. He's, he was going to burn a, he was going to burn Gene's copy of the Iliad. I, that was so sad. <laughs> I know you approve because you don't like it. I but yeah, it wasn't the cider which books. made me surpass myself. It was this liberation we had torn from the gray encroachments of 1943. The escape we had concocted this afternoon of momentary, illusory, special and separate peace. And that's just one of the uses of separate piece. But what do you think this title means? What does separate piece mean? It seems very personal, as if because the war is in the background, that the idea of peace is not present because there's a war going on. How, so there's an irony there that like somebody is finding peace in the midst of all of this. Um, and then perhaps that what it is, is that, you know, going back to what they are what they are doing there and what they're trying to do. They're trying to hold on to that last, those last moments of, of, of their childhood, of their innocence, but also like they're finding, they seem to be finding peace in moments. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're searching for an inner contentment that, that, it, that the world around them is not going to provide for them. They have to find it themselves. And they're finding it in this moment of this winter carnival that fin that they all come up with. So it's not like, you know, it's not like it, it's not a sanctioned Devon school carnival, right? It's not like they're all going mm -hmm. to prom, you know, and, and this is their this is their peaceful moment. And they're a, no, this is like we came up with this and everything. And it's just kind of this sense of accomplishment that they have. And I see the peace within it because it's yeah. So I think it's a sort of a personal inner peace that is and the separation comes from the fact that it is theirs and theirs alone and it is outside of the rage that is going on in society yeah i would agree especially carving out these moments where the war perhaps doesn't reach them mm -hmm. that for a moment they can forget about that and forget about the fact that they are on the cusp of adulthood and they're there i mean if they can enlist they are adults yeah. right and to maintain that innocence and that youthfulness and just to have fun with one another, I think those are those moments. Yeah, and it's punctuated, too, and punctured as well by the fact that on the very next page they get Leper's Telegram. Oh, yeah. So that's the war that's the, war, that's the world intruding back in again. Yep, yep. I agree with you. <laughs> so you mentioned Catching the Rye, that you read this, was it after? I believe was we read it said? after Catching the Rye. Okay. Same year of school that was like within, okay. it was in, within months of one another. Would you say that it would be fair to compare this to Catcher in the Rye? Are, are there similar themes there? Is Gene 
similar to Holden? Is he more likable than Holden? Or should we? is it unfair to make a comparison whatsoever to Catcher in the Rye? I don't know if the comparison is a one for one because Holden goes on a much different journey than Gene does. They're both reflecting back on something. Now, Gene's doing it like 15 years. I think it's 15 years later. At the very beginning of the novel, we just have a framing device where he is an adult and he is standing by the tree. And it's like 10 or 15 years later. Uh, and then we flash back to the 1940s. Holden, it's just about a year because he's in he's in a mental uh, he's in a psychiatric hospital. Now, I can see why they get the comparison, because they're both prep school kid novels. They both deal with the end of childhood, the loss and the fragility of innocence. So they're kind of in the same subgenre. They're kind of in the same like they're kind of in the same area. But I wouldn't compare them one for one because they have a much each of them has a much different story and a much different feel or mood. Holden is angry, like so angry and so alone, whereas Gene is alone as a narrator looking at the presence, but he he is relating something about friendship. Now, I mean, he might feel alone now, but he's feeling of how he became alone. And he he's not bitter in the way that Holden is. He's a little more focused. He's a little more steady. He I think he sees his future in front of him. And I think there's a little bit more maturity there, even if he is immature from time to time. But, you know, so so, um, I, you know, I think it's it's a fair enough comparison, but I wouldn't like put the two up and say you have to choose one. Death is not an option, you know, because I don't <laughs> think it's I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's a one for one comparison. Yeah, I, I think the only thing that might be one for one is <laughs> rich prep, prep school uh -huh. boys. Yeah. That's about all I could potentially see. I think there's a depth to both of those characters, but you're right that they're going on different journeys, and I think that we see different emotions. And and I do see some anger within Gene, mm -hmm. or r resentment, I suppose, towards Finney, and working out those feelings, but certainly not as maybe destructive. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that, because it was destructive for somebody. But yeah, between the two of them... I think maybe people would find Gene more palatable. Possibly. But I think you're right that it's it's hard to, if you put them up against one another, be like, yeah, well. But do you feel like Catcher over, I don't know, was, were, was it too similar? I wonder if you're similar to me where I, if I read a novel and really like it and then another one I read is too similar, I'm not going to like that one as much. Was that a situation that happened to you? Yeah, I think that's that's what I was saying at the top of the show. I think that's what happened to me. I think this, okay. this catcher just – I think you were about to say overshadowed it, and I, I think that's the correct way of putting it. I enjoyed the novel when I was 16, but I'd already had – the catcher had an impact on me. As cliche as that is for a 16-year-old boy in the suburbs to read The Catcher in the Rye and have it have an impact on me, right? Like, yeah. wow, I'm – so basic, but, um, but at the same time it did. And so I had this impact on me and then I read this and like, Oh, this is just, this is a lot like it, but I liked catcher more, you know, and, and I had, 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 I had a little bit more space with it. I think it would have resonated with me a little bit more. Do you think the reverse would have been true for you? Had you read a separate piece first in class and then read catcher? What do you think would have happened? I don't know. Honestly, I think, I think, I think I still would have, I think still catcher still would have had an impact on me. 
Um, I think separate piece would have been a little bit better remembered, especially since I'm starting to think of like the other stuff I read that year. And the Shakespeare was Macbeth, which is one of my favorite plays of his. But then the other novels, I'm thinking like, what did we do? We did Huck Finn. Um, We did Death of a Salesman, which I remember enjoying. Um, I still remember that play. Uh, we might have done something else. I have to look up my. Oh, we did. My, I know why the cage bird sings, which I also enjoyed. But but yeah. So it was just you know we had these two, and I think I think they it would have resonated with me a little bit better, especially if there was more space between them. Yeah, I understand. My next question is about friendship. So originally I had a question that was Gene internally or to us really often. In the beginning, I should say, in the beginning section, maybe like the first quarter of the novel, mm-hmm. will say that Finney is his best friend. Mm-hmm. And it's there are times that it he says it within a sentence and it works seamlessly. And then there are other times that he almost says it and it contradicts something that had happened right before. Like he's trying to, I don't know, like there's some like tension that he has mentioned. And then he says, you know, but Finney's my best friend. Yeah. But he never says it out loud. So originally I was going to ask, like, what, why doesn't he do that? But I, I think what I actually want to ask is, are Jean and Finney really friends? Does Jean care for Finney at all or vice versa? I think he does. And I think the, the problem that he has is I think he is a little bit guarded emotionally. And I think he's a slightly cynical person. Um, we don't get much out of what his relationships with other guys were like prior to meeting Phineas, but he seems to not be able to trust the emotions that he might have for another boy or that that boy might have for him because he honestly cannot believe that Phineas is sincere as he is the way he is sincere. And that's one of those things about Phineas's character. He, he doesn't really lie, you know, like he mm-hmm. honestly is rooting for Gene to succeed. And, and that's really weird. And perhaps in his past, because he, maybe perhaps he's used to insincerity. Maybe he's used to people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm rooting for you. And they really aren't. Or he's used to over competitive guys and stuff like that. So I think that Gene is processing a lot of the emotion that he is coming to terms with here. And he does feel this way, but he is too afraid to actually say it out loud to his friend. And say, yeah, that you're my best friend? Yeah. It's interesting also because I don't know if he knows who he is without Finney. Mm-hmm. I, I think his his identity is very much based on his association with Finney, and that's really hard, too, especially for someone who is coming of age. So, ugh. And it's all about, it's almost all about competition almost with Finney and he's always outshined by Finney so there's all that going on there so it's so complicated that I feel like there are all these warring emotions and feelings mm-hmm. and he can't he, he can't necessarily make out what he yeah what he actually feels for Finney I think in some of these moments you know the the branch situation I would almost say no but I think that was a spur of the moment just being really upset at that moment Mm -hmm. so he did it but when you see how like afterwards visiting him in the hospital after his second fall and them having that row where 
uh, Gene is outside of the the window and Finney's yelling at him and Finney falls out of the bed and all of that. I think yeah. you actually see that there is care and compassion for Gene, but Gene, I think a, as maybe many young men don't necessarily know how to outwardly show that because even with Leper in that scene when he goes to see him, like he freaks out at certain things and like runs off instead of <laughs> trying to you know be a good friend. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think. There's a lot going on with that, but it's just so interesting that internally, or really to us, he will say, you know, he's my best friend. Mm -hmm. But if Finney were to say that to him, which I think he does, he says, like, you're my best friend, but Gene never responded to that. I was like, that's so sad. What's going on here? Yeah. Well, and and they're also in this culture of competition, right? So, like, Phineas being the star athlete, it's it's this very, very outward competition aspect to it because it's it's all in um, sports. And, you know, the the war itself, you know, but there's a couple of lines that Gene has when he's describing just his who he is. He's kind of established, kind of establishing his character and, and his academic success. And at one point or another, they mentioned he could possibly be the valedictorian, right? Like he is has some of the top grades in the class. And that is a very competitive, backstabby, underhanded culture of a lot of of people on that level academically um it's it's very stereotypical and it's not to it's not it's not for all of them it's not all of them but there is that thread running through a lot of places like that where yeah you're you're in classmates with these people but these are all your competition and Mm -hmm. that messes you up i think worse sometimes than being an athlete in competition because at least the athlete in competition it's a direct competition and you can see and you can train for it and you can, so there's a physical ability aspect to it. And there's a very set regimented thing that you are competing at where, you know, like a race or something like that. And it's still, it can still be very, very cutthroat, but academic competition in that honor student way is cutthroat on another level. And I think Gene is living in that culture. And that's one of the things that, has his guard up because I think he, Mm -hmm. he never fully trusts anybody, which is why, you know, when they have those, he never actually says to Finney, like, you know, how he care, how he, how he feels about him, how he loves him. You know I mean? That's, it's because he is, he is not trusted the guys that he's been around. Which is interesting because there's not much talk of academics necessary like there are a couple Mm -hmm. he doesn't do well on that one test and he says as that was the lowest grade he's ever gotten yeah and then there's a plan to really start studying and everything but Mm -hmm. the amount of actual school scenes are pretty few and far between yeah that's true so i wonder what that i mean i think it's certainly something i i i agree with you i just find it interesting that we're at a school setting but school is like the farthest part from there it's you know it's everything but almost uh, we all remember i remember college there were semesters <laughs> where classes were there were periods of college where classes were the first thing from my freaking mind you know um and <laughs> and I, I i get it because both of us having taught they might do well they're checked out anyway or or they're they're really focused on other things and the world they make the world they make for themselves in the school has very little to do with their actual academic schooling you know it has a lot to do with what goes on between the classes and what goes on outside the classes so yeah yeah so i i can i can see that that's very realistic to me 
So I'll move on then to the summer session so that we can sort of segue into that and the yeah. fact that the main action of this that, of course, has ripples throughout the rest of the novel, it occurs during the summer session where there aren't as many students. Mm-hmm. On campus, it seems, and some of the long-term faculty are, I guess, on vacation, and others have stepped in and everything. Let's see. What are some of my questions that I could ask? I guess, first of all, what 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 are the relationships that you saw between adults and the students, or how did the adults treat the students, and then could this have worked if it were not in the summer session? And everyone was there. Would the same have been possible? I I saw a lot more freedom in the summer session. A lot more of a. I mean, maybe I'm misinterpreting. I'm trying to remember what the what adults appear in the novel and what adults appear, especially in the summer session. And I get the feeling that they were very laissez-faire. You know, like yeah, yeah. So that's why they were able to get away with as much as they did. So. Which I don't think they would have been able to do. I they they probably would have been able to s- establish a secret suicide society or whatever in the fall, but it would have been a lot more. There would have been a lot, a lot more elaborate sneaking out of the dorms and going to the tree and stuff like that because there are a lot more obstacles. I think it would have been um, probably would have actually been too focused on that. It would have been a little too more too convoluted. So I think the summer session being that it was so pared down and you only had your your three or four, you know, your, your, your small group of boys and stuff. I think it just allowed for that to, that freedom to kind of flourish, uh, flourish there. So I don't, and I really don't remember much about the adult characters in, uh, this portion of the novel. They seem stricter. Well, especially because the actual headmaster isn't there. So someone was stepping in, Uh someone was an interim during that period. And so when the actual headmaster comes back, he yells at, Jean and Finney a couple times Mm -hmm. but I remember going to that beach scene because going to the beach was instant expulsion yeah and they stayed the night and they got back I think he had like a French test or something and then the next luncheon that they had with the interim they mentioned going to the beach and nothing was done about it so I think there is that laissez-faire and I think also the adults are buying into this separate piece and creating it or cultivating it for the students mm. and allowing that because I think they honestly did look at them and be like, man, they're on the crux, crux of adulthood and they will be serving this country. So to give them as much freedom as possible. Did you ever ch- teach summer school? No, no. See, I, I mean, I was school. burned out by the end of yeah, eight I taught, months. I taught summer school about three or four years. I mean, I got in pretty good relationships with some of the kids in there. You know, I ended up having a few of those kids in English classes maybe the following year. And it was pretty cool that we knew each other because then, you know, things went a lot smoother. But I got to tell you, I was there because I needed to get paid. And and I wouldn't be shocked if a number of the teachers at the school in the summer, too, were just like, yeah, I'm just getting a paycheck because I need the money. Mm-hmm. And I think that also contributes to the laissez-faire attitude. Okay. You know, and, and the fact, again, it's everything's half open. You know, it's, it's – but, yeah, I think you're right, though, that they also – but perhaps also that they're like, yeah, let's let's let them have their their summer in, in yeah. some way, you know? Yeah. And I think the summer, because there aren't as many students there, did afford the, the ability to create closer relationships with some of them and, you know, a group that we would – have or see names 
pop up repeatedly rather than a bunch of unknown people that you would only see their name once. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it was the whole campus was out there, I don't think they could play that blitz ball. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Though it did seem like more and more people are coming to those secret suicide PAXIS club meetings every night. So crazy. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about boys and their relationships and friendship, we, we shall bridge this dangerous topic of homoerotic undertones. <laughs> so I got this from Wikipedia, which I thought was amusing, but various parties have asserted that the novel implies homoeroticism between Gene and Finney, including those who endorse a queer reading of the novel and those who condemn homosexuality as immoral. For example, the book was challenged in the book was challenged in the Vernon Verona Cheryl New York School Dress District in 1980 as a quote filthy trashy sex novel. Uh, I don't know what they were wow, reading. Wow, then then drama by Raina Telgemeier must be like wow, that's like Hustler. <laughs> it might be, yeah. Despite having no substantial female characters and describing no sexual activity. Though frequently taught in U.S. high schools, curricula related to a separate piece typically ignore a possible homoerotic reading in favor of engaging with the book as a historical novel or coming-of-age story. Knowles denied any such intentions, stating in a 1987 newspaper interview, quote, Freud said any strong relationship between two men contains a homoerotic element. If so, in this case, both characters are totally unaware of it. It would have changed everything. It wouldn't have been the same story. In that time and place, my characters would have behaved totally differently. If there had been homoeroticism between Phineas and Jean, I would have put it in the book, I assure you. It simply wasn't there, end quote. Not that there's so, anything Tom, wrong that... with that. No, no. Uh, what do you think? I mean, do you buy it, even though he says it's not there? Is it actually there? Do we still get a sense of it? I, I'm, I can read it both ways because... I like I was reading this. And I was like, wow, look, this really. There, it, I felt a. I kept seeing it. I think I even texted you about it. I was like, I'm I didn't sure pick did. up on this when I was 16, and it really seemed like they were. And I don't know if it was a balanced relationship or what. That maybe Phineas was in love with Jean, mm. or 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 they were both in love with each other, and one was a little more accepting of it than the other. I don't think that anything was ever going to come of that, though. I think that's the other thing. It's like this. It was always going to be unspoken, and it was always going to be kind of an undertone. But at the same time, if it's not, and we take and we take Knowles at his word, it's still an emotional relationship between the boys that mm-hmm. a lot of boys do not. You know, I'm stereotyping there, but there are a number of boys who who are so afraid of being that close to another boy emotionally that. They actually get homophobic. About it. Yeah. So so it is it is about a, an it is about an emotional relationship that could be romantic in some way, but could also just be very platonic. But either way, there's a lot of emotion invested in the two. And I guess you could also enter into that debate of the author's intent versus the reader's interpretation, because like right. you know, we've we've always heard like once it re- leaves your hands, it's in the audience's hands now and the audience makes the decision of what you of what the reading is. Right. I don't think it's as much of a binary. You know, it's it's not as black and white as. As, as I think Twitter would make out to be, for instance. But uh, but I do I, I can see both sides of this and I, I find value in both interpretations. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think saying one is true lessens the worth or value Mm -hmm. of it or of the other interpretation. I, I could go either way as well. I think there are some scenes where there seems to be staring and assessing mm-hmm. oh yeah and <laughs> a lot you know, of those moments <laughs> yes those moments and i feel like it's mostly gene looking mm-hmm. at phineas but those moments and in in, in that stillness and just looking at someone like th- there's might be something there because he is trying to figure out phineas but i think also if you're spending a a moderate amount of time staring at somebody looking at them you know i think that 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 might speak to something a bit deeper. Also, the sharing of clothing. Now, this comes from a female, and I feel like females more often will share clothing than men do. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But those scenes, and he says it very matter-of-factly, Gene, that Phineas would always, like he would make fun of what Gene was wearing or Gene's clothes, but he would wear them anyway. But then there's that moment where Finney is out, obviously, because he's in the hospital, and he puts on that whole dapper suit that he had and, like, the, the pink flag or whatever that was, the symbol that he had had worn. And I thought, there's something intimate about this, that two men are sharing clothing that you don't get when two women are sharing clothing. Would you agree with that? I would agree, because if I think of any other time that I shared or borrowed a clothing a piece of clothing that was a guy friend of mine, who that actually fit me because I'm not I'm not very small I'm I'm six one so like and so I, I you know if, if I'm gonna wear a piece of clothing you're like you're on my height it's always there has always been a practical reason for it like I don't know it was cold I forgot my jacket or we're going somewhere hey man borrow my jacket I borrow or I borrowed I was going somewhere and I borrowed an article of clothing from a friend because they it was just a I don't know almost like a piece of equipment. It was almost like, it was almost like borrowing a piece of equipment or something. Like it was never, can I borrow your shirt because I just want to wear this today. It was always like, I'm doing X, Y, Z. Hey, why don't you borrow this? Why don't you wear this? Because you'll be warmer. I had like one of my roommates in college. I think he borrowed my, um, like a, a tie or something for an interview or something like that. Like, you know, I have to do this. You have something I can borrow here. So it was always on a, there was always a practical reason behind it. And it wasn't just because I, I like that. Can I wear it? You know? Yeah. I, I don't know that there were any practical reasons. Although in the, in here, I will say that the borrowing can come in a non-literal fashion where you spend time around other guys and you might pick up some of their style. So you might go buy articles of clothing that are very much like what they would wear. So the, the, that, that is a, that is a version of that, I think. And I think girls might okay. do that too, where like, you know, yeah. Stacy has that really cute esprit sweater dress. So I'm like, I'm going to go buy that at the mall. Oh yeah. I did that. Constantly. Yeah. And yeah. I think guys do that too. I don't think you guys will acknowledge that, but but so, I th- but I think that that's a, it's it's a lower level of intimacy. But there, I think there's a sort of a connection there that like you know, or of an admiration. So. Mhm. Yeah. But you're. I like the fact that you use the word intimacy there because it does suggest an intimacy between the two of them. I think so. Okay, so we shall move on from the shipping. <laughs> yeah, I will say this though. I if I were to teach this and I was going to use this as this is sort of the the homoerotic context. Like, I don't think this is a queer. St- Story, especially since we're in 2022 and there are a 
billion of those novels out there now. I'm being hyperbolic, of course, but there are a lot more like this is not a novel that you slot in this like, you know, here's two boys who are in love with each other. Like there are actual novels about that that are out there that you could teach to to, to, to teenagers. Right. So I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say read a separate piece. I'd find something that's more contemporary for that. Yeah. It may be something that it's not subtext, but actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's plenty of gay coming of age stories. Yeah. And there's plenty of gay relationship stories that are among teenage boys and teenage girls and stuff like that, that you don't need a novel that's all subtext anymore to do it. Maybe back in 1960, you necessarily did. Even if Knowles wasn't really putting it there. But you know what I mean? Like, you didn't need it 50 mm-hmm. years. You, you might have needed it 50, 60 years ago. You do not need it now. So you could acknowledge it if you were teaching it or you were sharing with somebody. But the fact that it, they're the male friendship angle of it still holds up very, very well. I will say that. Okay, so now I'll move on to the violent episodes, uh, specifically the tree and the steps where we see the first and the second breaking of mm-hmm. Phineas's leg, respectively. What do each of these represent, the tree and the, and the marble step? And just for my, I guess, sanity, because I was confused when I, it popped up. I wasn't even asking the question. The question was, you know, wh- where's the climax of the novel? And the answer was... From the internet, anyways, the answer was the tree. But I thought the climax was during the tribunal and when he fell down the stairs the second time. Is that how you would point That's it? I agree with you there. Okay. There's too much. There's too much. The tree thing is almost. It's not a. It's not the inciting incident, but it's one of the more one of the incidents that keeps the plot that complicates the plot. Right. It's a complication. Yeah. But no, the marble steps to me—that's the climax because it's built because that whole scene is building up to what's how Phineas going to react yeah. when everything is on the table. And Phineas okay. run, yeah. So, you know, in the ride, we know more than the internet, Tom. Yeah, we, of course we know more than the internet. <laughs> yeah. So, what are these two separate either episodes or items, objects uh, represent? Would you say death? Really, for both I of them? I don't know. I'm just being stuck. <laughs> Like that was I so dramatic. Something very lo- I know I was being snarky. Death would get you points on an English paper. I don't know. <laughs> that's like the. As long as a, you explained it, yeah, it exactly. though. Oh God, there's so many bad high school English essay answers for this. Like the tree represents the looming, the danger of adulthood. <laughs> the loss of innocence. The right loss there. of innocence right there. And in the marvel, the slippery marvel is the. Marvel, marble, enunciate panneries in the middle of your stupid joke. It's it's the it's the innocent stepping away from the. I guess, I guess it's kind of true actually that there is a there there the tree looms right. Um, mm-hmm. Tree looms in the present. It looms in the flashback. It's dangerous to begin with. So we could talk about how it is kind of a a representation of the danger of the actual world, um, the danger they're going into of adulthood. Do the marble stairs represent the truth or something? Is it something about how the truth comes out at that moment? Or, But I don't even – see, this is the thing, and we could always get to this. I don't know if Gene purposely did anything on the tree. Mm-hmm. I think it's it, – to me, it's ambiguous. I can't tell if he did that on purpose. He seemed to shake it, but I can't tell if he was being silly, if he was – just being off balance or if he was being malicious. I don't know. I don't think he even, I don't, he is not a trustworthy narrator and that we don't have his full intent, but I think that also helps protect him because it 
keeps our sympathy for him because I don't know either. So maybe something about the truth or maybe something about something slipping away out of the marble steps. The marble steps are a little harder. The the whole thing I said about innocence and adulthood as snarky as I got, I think is fairly accurate with regard to the tree. Yeah, I I would agree with you with the ambiguity just to go off of that uh, as like a, a secondary discussion. Point yeah, because it makes it seem like he did it on purpose, given all the emotions leading up to that. Mm hmm. And so it seems like it was a spiteful move, and of course he did it on purpose. And then there are other people, Brinker and Lapellier, saying, like, I know you shook that tree. But, yeah, it could have been a weird twitch. And also I think he had one of those, like, glimpses of, you know, what would happen if the tree shook kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, he would, and he his body would fall to the ground. Like, that was prior to that. So all of these are pretty, it's like damning evidence against him, but it could have been a complete accident. And it's interesting to juxtapose that accident and that incident with the fact that he himself nearly fell off and got seriously injured, if not for Phineas yeah. catching him. And, and he said like saving his life. And so that was like a really interesting uh, situation. And then just like the lead up to everything, Finney looking back at him with like a quizzical look of, you know, did you just shake that tree? What are you trying to do? And then just dropping. I think there is ambiguity there. I don't know if that would necessarily change what we think about Gene if he did it spitefully. But clearly, I think Gene's guilt is enough for us to be like, well, at least he feels sorry about it, and he's not like a sociopath that did this and doesn't feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. But I, I would agree. I, I do think it is potentially, I think there's fear. I think that tree does represent fear. I think it starts right off at the beginning, you know, where he's looking up as an adult and looking up at this huge tree and then at flashing back and being a student and climbing up it for the first time and there's some hesitancy and the guys down at the bottom aren't sure that they want to do it. The fact that if you don't jump well, you are going to land on the bank. Yeah. And then I think there is that loss of innocence there, however cliche that might be, because in Finney falling, he loses potentially his future uh, well, he definitely loses his life in the end, mm -hmm. but his future, like his athletic future, and then Gene, I think it's it was all fun and games until that happened, and now he kind of takes on, uh, like he's really thrust into adulthood, and like now you've got to really <laughs> atone for your actions. And I would agree. I, I think, I don't know if it's Shakespeare that said, you know, the truth will out, but that was actually what I was thinking is that the marble staircase, and I, I, I think are just a way to extract truth in, in the worst possible way unfortunately because that was when that like the confession really comes out in the in the the, the doctor's office yeah. or whatever so i would say about that but two yeah really unfortunate oh situations one being natural the other being unnatural i don't know if that has anything to say but yeah yeah there is there is sort of a, a fearlessness little kids very often that you lose by a certain amount of time by a certain point if you're if unless you're like a total wimp like i was but you are more apt to jump out of trees and things like that when you're younger mm -hmm. um yeah i think i think you had it had it very very well in regards to the tribunal so i'll connect it back to the okay. the marble steps finney says he can't remember like it's really fuzzy mm -hmm. and gene i think remembers details but he is like oh yeah you know i was at the bottom of the tree looking up and everything 
But does Jean actually prove Bracker's point about uh, remembering details during a tragic event that I think Bracker said that he saw a child get hit by a car Mm -hmm. and he remembered every single detail of it and he will always remember it. And in that way, he's trying to prove that Jean is lying, that he doesn't remember. And then as a secondary question, do you think Finney actually does not remember what happened in the tree until provoked, or is he being willfully ignorant? Because Finney confessed to him, so is he just blocking all of that out? In regard to Phineas, it's very possible that his trauma has shielded him from actually remembering every detail of what happened. Without getting too into the gory details, I had a pretty traumatic accident on my bicycle when I was 13. I don't remember anything from before the accident to the time I woke up in a walk-in medical clinic screaming. Oh, it, okay. it is, and it's a good 20 to 30 minutes of my life that I, I are completely blacked out for me. I don't know. It might've been a little bit shorter than that. I might've been 10 or 15, but to this day, and that was 32 years ago, I don't remember a single moment between that. It's lost time. And it was part of it. You now part of it was I sustained a concussion. So maybe that was part of it. But it's very possible that that Phineas's brain has blocked that out of his memory because of the trauma that happened. So if he's fuzzy on the details, I actually trust him with that. When it comes to Gene, I think what happens is that you remember the details, but like I said, the thing, the, the thing, the details, the details that physically, that literally happened, I think are very clear. They were both on the branch. Gene did shake the branch and it, and Phineas fell off. Right. And that's kind of the indisputed thing. He wobbled it. Now it's the sort of like, there's like a Rashomon sort of thing we go through of like, what actually, how, how did it actually happen? Like, was it, a little bit of a wiggle and that it's just that unsteady of a branch with two people on it, that one of them's going to fall kind of like, you know, off a tightrope type of thing, or was it, or do you have the interpretation where he got up there? Like, ha ha ha, like a cackling villain. And like, so the intent is the ambiguous thing. And that's the thing that's clouding his thing. And I think that was it backer is the name of the, or Bracker is the name Bracker, of the person. Yeah. yeah. I think his analogy is, I think his lesson is a false lesson because he witnessed a kid get hit by a car, but he didn't hit the kid with the car. And uh, there's the difference. Gene is responsible in some way for what happened to Phineas. He's not responsible for what happened to that little kid. So he can see it in his mind's eye more clearly. Gene's struggling with the fact that did I do this on purpose or by accident? And he can convince himself either way. Because once he gets that idea in his head, he starts to work through it. He's like, oh, maybe I didn't. It's almost like, but did you or are you convincing yourself that you did? Because that seems logical. But yeah, so I think Bracker's analogy is it's a false equivalence because he was not the primary. He didn't he wasn't part of the action. He was just a witness. Yeah, that's true. I feel like Gene remembers <laughs> very well what's happened. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of hedging around there and, and trying not to get outed. Yeah. And I think there's also, which I'm going to get into this question, which seems later on, that seems like a dumb question, but I actually feel like it's not. But I think Finney, I think you're right, and I, I take your example very well, but I also think to a certain extent it might hurt Finney to admit mm -hmm. that Gene shook that branch. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want to 
because of his feelings for Gene are authentic. Like to have someone that you're saying is your best friend yeah. that you might love or be in love with, and that person has done this to you rather accidentally or purposely, yeah. then whoo, that's that's traumatic right there. So I think he honestly is trying to block block it out, not only because how of it how it's changed his life, but what that might mean for his relationship with Gene. Yeah, it's really nuanced. When you think about it, like both of them, that there are layers of this. That this is one of the things that I think makes the novel, like this being the central conf- conflict or the central thing of the novel that drives a lot of the conflict and a lot of the uh, the, the tension. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's really layered and it's more com- it's more complex than it appears. And I think that's one of the things that makes this memorable and like uh, it, it really drives the novel really really well. Absolutely. Okay. How would you say Finney has changed throughout the novel, or how does he change throughout the novel? Well, we know how physically he changes, mentally, emotionally. Mm -hmm. I think a bitterness does creep into him by the end. I think he's fighting against it. I think he he doesn't want to change. And I think that he's seeing a lot more of his friends, and especially Gene, in a way that he doesn't want to necessarily admit. So I think there's a little bit of a denial going on in there. But I think he is a little bit more bitter, and he's a little more cynical by the end of the novel. Finney is kind of a manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> he is. He is. He's not. He. he there, there are pieces of him in, like... Natalie Portman's character in Garden State or Elizabeth Town is a terrible movie, but Kirsten Dunst's character, which is kind of think the the trope namer of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. This idea that it's this extraordinary person who changes the life of a cynical guy. And he's kind of the extraordinary kid who changes the the life or mindset of this kind of like guy who's and Gene's not really a jerk when the when the book starts. But he certainly isn't that he, he's very, very normal. He's very academic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here's come this guy who's like totally different. And, oh, my God. And, and there's an infatuation there. And and it, it is very it is it has bits and pieces of that manic, manic pixie dream girl trope. But it works here. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, he's so charismatic. Mm-hmm. He, even though he's not the best student, he's able to win over the teachers and, you know, just be really i don't know authentic to them like he might be white lying a lot but he's not like outright bull-faced lying and then he's so good at athletics and so i like how the first break you know it doesn't get him down down feels like he can put his energy into helping make gene be this um great athlete but the, I think what starts – so you think like, oh, maybe he's okay. Maybe he's the same Finney. Mm-hmm. But I think that whole situation with saying the war doesn't exist and it's just, you know, all these men kind of big brothering, 1984-ing everybody. Mm-hmm. And like there's not actually war. Like something weird's going on there. And I think we see, yeah, who that true Finney is. I think you're right that, that it's just, man, some negative feelings have started to pop up and, and it meant more than he was putting on because yeah. when he blows up, I think he's honest for the first time in a, in a while uh, and saying why he was saying the war wasn't on and what that meant for him. And I wonder if Brinker... Brinker? If Bricker? Brinker? Bracker? Brink. If Bracker knew a bit more, because he was trying to psychoanalyze 
Finney and mm-hmm. saying, you know, you tiptoe around him, you being Gene, and you try to coddle him and everything, but he needs to, like, be aware that, you know, using the words like cripple and all of that. And I don't know, do you think that was something, was he on the right path of, like, yeah, we can't pretend that he's the same Finney, we have to treat him as he is now? Or do you, is there a right or wrong answer to that one? I think I think it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I think he's trying to be tough love there um, because he is acknowledging certain truths. But Gene does want to shield his friend from the world, especially because his friend is in such a tra- fragile place. But I like that you brought up how Phineas' rant about the war and about what it means to him and being this finally where this place of honesty shines through because it's almost like he is emotionally honest in a lot of ways and he is emotionally expressive in a lot of ways that Gene is not. And Gene has a more honest view of the world that Phineas, you know, like it's almost like there's the opposite in that way. Like Gene's emotionally guarded and Phineas isn't, but Phineas is almost like intellectually or rationally or logically guarded yet Gene is not. And we see those sort of levels kind of coming together. Like, you know, if, if I'm looking at it, it's almost like a, like an equalizer or something on a, on a stereo. And like, you know, you're, you're moving, you're moving the two and you can't see me right now. I've got my hands in front of me and you're moving one down and one up. So they get closer and closer to center where they're both, they're both achieving more honesty or more or less guardedness about either their emotions or their, uh, or, or the, their kind of, or the reality of things or whatever you want to call it. Mm-mm. They're almost foils in that way. Yeah. Do you feel like, Gene changed in the novel, and then by the end of it, does he learn anything about himself? I think he does. I think, I think he's incredibly, he's an incredibly sad person, and not in that like he's such a sad like I'm not in a pejorative way. I think he's just a very, very sad man, um, emotionally at the end because of the death of his friend, and and when we get to the, like we get the hints that maybe, uh, um, that perhaps he is more willing to acknowledge the sadness that is within him as an adult especially coming back to this place and what the nostalgia of it does for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is a lot that he's going through. I think that Phineas allows Gene to understand and explore emotions that nobody, even, even a, and I know I'm going to sound very stereotypical and gender norming here, but even a woman would not be able to do that for him. We don't even know what his relationship is right beyond the relationships he has in the book. We don't know if Gene's married or his kids or is dating anybody, if it's a guy or a girl or whatever uh, in the novel. We absolutely do not know. But I would imagine that he sees this as like a really special relationship that opened that opened something up for him that. And I think I think he really learned something from this and, and is really I think he still carries some guilt, mm. especially since he's dead. And he took, he said he took a piece of him with him, but I think, yeah, I think he's, but he also carries a lot of sadness because of just, and maybe regret too. Uh, so I think he changes in that way. I think he was a lot more cocksure of himself when he was in the beginning of the book and, and, and he was still very, very innocent at the end. He is very, very sad. Yeah. Which I wish there were more of an outpouring of emotion. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in how the novel ends and, and the words that he's saying, I think that there is, you can tell how much that death really affected him. Yeah. 
Oh boy, I think he comes to terms with what Finny actually meant to him. I think especially the the second break and and having that row and and then of course finding out that that Finny had died. I think he understands. Well, maybe they were best friends. And golly, I yeah, I, I think he's an adult now for sure. I, I think you're right that he was just kind of living it up and living in. In Finny's shadow as well as next to him and soaking up all the attention and now, I mean, for what? What was the purpose of all of that? And so now, really, they are kind of leaving behind um, the Like, that was the first death that they encountered. Yeah. It wasn't on a battlefield, but it came to them in what the professors thought and what the students potentially thought and the townspeople thought that this was a protected bubble from the war and actually, you know, this death occurred and, and shook the community just as much as a a death from the war. So, yeah, I think uh, he, oh, I think he learns a lot and I think he grows a lot too mm-hmm. by the end of the, of the novel. Yeah. I, it's curious though that the novel doesn't end with, you called it a framing device, but I almost wonder if that's incorrect because he, I almost wanted to see adult Gene again yeah. at the very end. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you're kind of right. Like I, I just used the term framing device because I just didn't have any other term for it, but we never come out of the frame. <laughs> you know, we never come out of the yeah. picture. We're never back into the framing device, which is kind of weird. It's like, you know, I, I was even now, like 30 years after reading this, I couldn't remember how it ended. I just remember how Finney, that Finney died. And I was like, so I was waiting for the moment where, like, I don't know, he walks away from the tree or something, or we get some sort of, but no, it just, he, he stays there. Maybe it represents that he's never really left in some ways. Like, the, the, so maybe it's, it's supposed to put a point on how this haunts him, and we don't need to necessarily see him, or that he, he wants us to stay there in the, at Devon by the tree a little bit longer, and that's why he never, he doesn't necessarily leave. Maybe bad essay answer he left a part of himself behind there blah 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 so the 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 tree the adult visit it's more of a trigger or a catalyst for the plot than it mm-hmm. is a device i guess maybe that's the better way to put it but yeah i think i think he just wants us to he wants us to kind of still be in that moment with phineas's death and, and everything and the war coming and and have that resonate more than wrap it up in a bow that's mm-hmm. the best answer i can give yeah, well, I was thinking about because I just finished a, the contemporary version of Ethan Frome called The Smash Up by mm-hmm. Ali Benjamin. And so I was thinking about Ethan Frome that you are pulled back out of that into contemporary times. Yeah. But I think there is something pretty heavy that sits with you in the fact that you are left mm-hmm. basically with, with Finney's death and you, you don't – because maybe that's just where Gene is too, that he's never left that time yeah. period either. So I, th- I think yeah. that's pretty interesting. But I would have expected him to come back. Yeah. With with Frome, we have a third-person narrator who gets the story. So we have like a secondhand account of the story. And the, the, the reason that Warden takes us out back into the present day is so we could see what happened to the characters. Mm-hmm. Because the flashback ends with the bang, right? It ends with the sledding accident. And then from there, now we're like, oh, wow, like this is this guy's fate. And that was teased at the beginning of the book anyway. So if she didn't put that in there, it would have actually it would have just been this there. It needed to be there. Right. She set it up at the very beginning of the novel 
So it, it, we needed to come back to it at some point to see what happened. Like, what's the deal with Ethan Frome now? Because it's, it was hinted at here. Phineas is the narrator and he is the main character. So not Phineas, I'm sorry. Gene, Gene is the protagonist, right? So there's a little bit more leeway there. He doesn't necessarily set anything up in, in the, he just kind of talks about, wow, I'm back here now. And there's a little bit of feeling in there and here's the tree. And then I'm right into the flashback. Cause the, the present day stuff doesn't last very long either. No, it doesn't. So yeah, just a couple pages. Yeah. But I, I so I, yeah, that's said I think you're right. I, <laughs> sorry. I thought it interrupted you. Go ahead. I have a silly question. It seems silly. I'll give my answer after I ask it. And then I'm trying to think if there was anything else. I joked to you over text that John Green owes John Knowles money because I read this and I kept thinking of looking for Alaska <laughs> because it's not the same exact novel, but it's like, oh, prep school novel, and there's this character who kind of turns their world around, and, Uh-oh. like, you know, she dies. And like, oh, jeez. You know, yeah, so spoiled. I've never read it, but now it's all spoiled for oh, me. Oh, no, it's, it's, a, it's actually a really... Uh, I've read four or five John Green novels by now. I'd say it's, like, second on my list. I've, I've read four. I think it's my second favorite, so... Okay, so I, I found I, my I, yes, your second favorite, and then all the way to the turtles down is your first. No, I've actually well, that's the one I never read. Actually, I've heard I've heard it's good, so I'll probably read it at some point. Um, no, my first is Paper Towns. Paper Towns. I really enjoyed that book. I heard. I think it's just Gone Girl light. Is that true? I read it before I read Gone Girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like both of them. I'll have to reread it, though. Uh, but Paper Towns is also the first one I ever read. My my least favorite of the four that I read was um, The Fault in Our Stars. Oh, okay. So I liked it, but I was just not as much as the other one. An Abundance of Catherines is the third. An Abundance of Catherines. Man, you're, you are a John Green sycophant, it seems like. When you find them in the book room at your high school, you tend to pick them up. Whatever. Them. I know so much you. The man has my career. So. <laughs> Okay, I've have two more questions and then one silly question. So one question is about the Leper Lapellier episode. I didn't want to leave this novel without talking about that. So when Jean goes and Jean seems to maybe not necessarily be a friend Mm -hmm. with Leper, but he probably is the friendliest and kindest to him, even though he might not think always kind thoughts towards him. But he doesn't bully him. And so that is probably the primary reason why Leper actually asked him to come to Vermont. And there's this just huge breakdown. And he got a Section 8. Is that correct? Yes. And basically that he is not mentally stable uh, or of a uh, good mental capacity or emotional Mm -hmm. capacity to be within the Army. And there is this huge... I don't even know. It's not even a confrontation because it's one-sided. But this monologue from Leper in the midst of a field and Gene can't handle it, yells at him and runs off. And in the midst of this, there there are tears. I can't remember. Is both Leper and Gene crying? It's on page 140, if we have the same edition. Mm-hmm. He says yeah. Um, he's yeah. – they talk about Brinker's poetry – and yeah. um, he says, oh, he uh, Snow White with Brinker's face on her. There's a picture. Then he broke into sobs. Leper, what is it? What's the matter, Leper? Leper, hoarse, cracking st- sobs broke from him. 
another ounce of grief and he would have begun tearing his country store clothes. And then he gets, then he launches into the store of like the story of like what his experience was like and how I think he's like, they turned everything. I'm on the ward 42. Now he's like, they turned everything inside out. I couldn't sleep in bed. I had to sleep somewhere everywhere else. I can eat the mess hall. Like how, how it turned everything. Like it just, just mentally, he just, he cracked. Yeah. And he said, I said nothing, and Leper, having said so much, went on to say more, to speak above the wind and crackings as though his story were never finished. And I like that phrase, as though his story would never be finished. Yep. Then they grabbed me, and there were arms and legs that have everywhere. Because, like, I think they're, he's talking about some, like, hazing or something that was happening. And Gene screams, shut up. And he says, when any minute, and he says, do you think I want to hear every gory detail? Shut up. I don't care. I don't want to happen. I don't care what happened to you, leper. I don't give a damn. Do you understand that? There's nothing. This has nothing to do with me. Nothing at all. I don't care. I turned around and began a clumsy run across the field in a line, which avoided his house and aimed toward the road leading back into town. I left leper telling his story into the wind. He might tell it forever. I didn't care. I didn't want to hear any more of it. I had already heard too much. What did he mean by telling me a story like that? I didn't want to hear any more of it. Not now or ever. I didn't care because it had nothing to do with me, and I didn't want to hear any more of it, ever. That's a really powerful scene. It really is, yeah. And and I wondered what was going on with Gene that he just seems so uncomfortable, he can't take it. At one point, he yells, like, I can't take your stupid army words, which yeah. before he would have been all about learning more about the army. Uh, and then he runs off, and I just wondered, is is he uncomfortable with the emotions that Leper is feeling? Is Leper himself making him uncomfortable? Is this something, you know, mental illness and how people, that makes people uncomfortable? What do you what do you get out of this scene? Yes, uh, to all of that. <laughs> But I also think he's scared because I think on some level he's scared it's going to happen to him. Because, like, if you look at it, like, he, he is he is the way he even narrates it. He, like, kind of repeats phrases in a sense. Um, I didn't want to hear any more of it. I already heard too much. What do you mean by telling me a story like that? I don't want to hear any more of it now, now or ever. I didn't want to. He said I didn't want to hear any more of it ever, like three times. That's like a little kid putting their hands up against their ears and going la, 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 like. It's it's I think he's frightened in addition to being uncomfortable. Yeah. And behold, this has nothing to do with me is a knee jerk reaction. That's out of immaturity. It could come off as selfish, but I think it's out of it's out of fear as well. I think he's afraid of his future. He's afraid of the war. Yeah. And and he's like he <laughs> the, the, the leper never even went to war. You know, like he didn't even get to the battlefield and he cries like oh my god like it's just it's so much scarier than he realized and he he's kind of freaking yeah out. i think it becomes real for him mm -hmm. all of a sudden yeah because everyone had these romantic ideas of what war would be yeah. until you get into it which i feel like happens with every generation or every mm -hmm. world we have they have this idea of what it is propaganda is really <laughs> effective oh thank you teacher I think the other thing that really compounds it is that this is not him visiting Leper in a hospital after he's been shot. Like, he's not physically injured. He is mentally screwed up. Yeah. And that's even harder for him to comprehend. So it's like one thing, because he's seen Phineas with the with the broken leg and, and all the other stuff. And so the physical injury aspect of it's the tangibility of that is like, okay, there there's a... Well, he'll heal, you know, and, and oh, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. And this is just temporary or whatever. 
the fact that he's just like Leper's just still telling a story into the wind. He's still going to be telling his story like it. That's scary because mm-hmm. he can't comprehend it. So yeah, I think that's part of it, the mental aspect of it because it's not a physical injury. Yeah. Oh, man. So my final serious question <laughs> is what did Finney die of? I'm sorry I left. I had a dangling preposition. Of what did Finney die? And the reason why I'm asking this is because I feel like the first time I read it, and this time especially, when I read it, the doctor isn't 100% sure of what happened. He's like, it must have been a piece of marrow, da 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 But in my mind, Finney died on the table because he had a broken heart and he mm-hmm. he had kind of given up on life. But I wondered if that was a reading that you got as well. That's kind of the reading I get, too. I guess the medical reason for it, a blood clot could be or a marrow clot or whatever it is. I mean, that does happen, you know, like an embolism or something like that. So if if there's something technically that happens. But I think he I think you're right. I think he kind of gives up because of all of the circumstances and everything that happened. And he does make up with his friend. But at the same time, like. I think he sees how broken that relationship is even still, right? Like, mm-hmm. do you really feel that they've fully mended their relationship after they kind of make up in the operating room or, or the hospital room? I have a feeling they do it because that's what they've been doing their whole lives as kids because, you know, kids get into fights and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to make up and now we're friends again. And then sometimes, you know, sometimes those friendships end, but sometimes and they and, and other times they do hold it against the other person. But a lot of times it's like, oh, it's water under the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're trying to do, but I don't think it's actually ever going to happen. I think deep down Finney knows it. And I think that's, I think you're right. You know, that perhaps he just, he fades away, which is really sad. It really is. Yeah. And, and again, you know, that explosive moment that comes from Finney, I think is, is so much honesty that we've not seen from him for a long Mm -hmm. time in the novel that, he just puts it all out there, you know, his feelings towards the situation, towards the war and his injury and all of that. And so I think he he went through unburdened. But, yeah, I think he probably does know what's what's <laughs> what's on the other side of, of the surgery, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, my funny question to end this so we don't end on a downer is we were treated with a new type of room this this time, this book. It's called a butt room. <laughs> and it's where they smoke, I guess, cigarette butts, etc. And Tom had made a point of bringing back a novel he didn't care for, so I was proud of him for making that reference. The Pump Room that we saw in Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. And so, Tom, I wonder which would you prefer to spend your time in, the butt room or the pump room? I think when we were discussing this on text, I told you that... <laughs> They call the butt. They call it the butt room because that's where they all go to smoke. I'm really kind of have an allergy to cigarette smoke. Like I, I can I can handle a smoky bar, but it gives me a raging headache um, to the point where like when I was in college because I went to college in, in the waning days of when you could smoke in a bar, and uh, we used to go to bars all the time. And um, you know I would come home at after last call or whatever, um, half drunk. Or completely drunk, depending. And We're learning I, so much about you on this episode. Because the, the alcohol dulled the headache from the, from the cigarette sure. smoke. But I would, I would have to shower before I went to bed, no matter how drunk I was. Because I, if I woke up, if I hadn't, and I woke up everything smelling of cigarette smoke, it would make it like so much worse. So I think I will stay in the pump room. 
with all the repressed rich white people. Indeed. I think I would also go to the pump room if only because I think more drama happens in the pump room mm. and potential shipping. And, you know, I'm all about that. And I like <laughs> to pair people up. So I would enjoy the pump room. But I agree. Like that's that's a what's it called? Deal breaker, you know, in terms of relationships is like if you smoke, yeah. there's not any future for us. I'm so sorry. I have very few deal breakers in relationships. Smoking was one of them romantic relationships i've had friends who smoked and it's not a deal breaker for me but a romantic relationship is always the deal breaker with smoking there are other things um that are obvious that and i think i think that anybody should should have as a deal breaker um you know like racism <laughs> like racism yes that would be a any of the isms basically should probably be a deal breaker you know stuff like that but but yeah smoking yeah although the atmosphere in the butt room with the guys it's actually kind of funny, you know, like yeah. I, I've been in places like that and they can be fun. So, so there, there's, I'm not going to dismiss it entirely, but yeah. And the, the butt room was a preface. It did play a purpose in being a preface to the tribunal, mm-hmm. but I think because no one was taking it seriously in particular, Gene and the fact that Finney wasn't there, they, yeah. they couldn't leave it happen there. The trial bothered me because Brinker, right, is the name of the character. Yes. He he takes it way too seriously for me. And I'm like, what what is I mean, I get it that like you have like Phineas seems to be Phineas has seemed to put some of it behind him. Gene is working on it on his own with that incident and everything. Brinker can't let it go, but Brinker wasn't there. And the whole they drag Leper into it. I'm just like, it's very much this weird bullying thing that's going on with that it, it may i guess it's supposed to make me uncomfortable but i really hated brinker because of it i was just like why are you pressing this issue why can't you let these two kids work it out on their own yeah. you know you're not protecting phineas by doing this and i was like yeah, i was just like you're being really just you're being that person who i can just say can't let it go again and who is who is toxic in that way yeah i mean he I would say is a jerk. Yeah, I have a stronger word for that, but yeah, I was. <laughs> he he's like creating unnecessary drama. Yeah, yeah, and they have this trial, and the trials, the trials kind of befitting Phineas because Phineas is like you know the always coming up with the harebrained things and the and the carnival and everything. So it's it's the polar opposite of the carnival, mm-hmm. you know. So, but even then, I'm just like, what the hell, right? Like, <laughs> so Brinker is responsible for Phineas's death. That's uh, my yeah, story. no, I mean, <laughs> that's Brinker, actually Brinker's fault. Yeah. Brinker kills Phineas. <laughs> yeah, just by way of the stairs, potentially. Yeah. yeah, it could be. Yeah, we don't even get a reaction from the other people, really. I mean, I think they come up to Gene at the end and give him, like, some solicitations of kindness. But we don't really see that the other people, they probably didn't think they had any hand to play in that, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, I think that's all I have for us. Okay. So the final question, of course, is, is a separate piece required reading? I would say, yeah, I would I would put it, I would find it and group it with other novels, novellas, or stories that are about the relationship between best friends who are boys in a way that is, um, this is very, very complex. It's com- complicated, but there's a healthiness to the exploration of emotion in the relationship between them that I think is is beneficial. 
I'll keep what I said about the whole like you know as home uh, you could certainly talk about the gay context and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but I would not put this in sort of like like I said earlier I was like you know don't 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 be the person who's like you know there's there's a little bit of uh, homoerotic shipping going on in here, if that's why you want to give this to somebody to read find a story about coming age, of age among two or one or two gay boys. <laughs> and and go with that because that's don't don't go with subtext go with what's the opposite of subtext context i don't know um go with text right like not subtext but for for relationships messages yeah blatant messages put it out there um but with with the relationship between boys you know friendship tragedy how we handle our emotions, how we guard ourselves. I think you could put this on the pile of, of, of the ones that really, really work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably others that, that would really, really work there that also deal with tragedy, but this would be, this is almost one of the, one of the foundational texts of that, right? Like, you know, I think there are a lot of other books that there are probably a lot of other books that when you read them, you see where, they reflect this a little bit. So yeah, I think in that regard, it might be. Do you think that you would have this for a younger or older high school crowd? Hmm. Maybe. I don't think my freshmen would get it. Maybe some of them would. I don't know if my seniors would care. So maybe 10th or 11th grade, you know, Hmm. I mean, maybe the seniors would, especially since they're about to head to college and stuff. But I I think, I think there's a sweet spot of 10th or 11th grade for this book. Yeah. I would say that it is required reading. Now, even though we said you can't necessarily substitute one for the other without Mm. losing something, I will say that maybe if you didn't like Catcher in the Rye, give give this a try, and maybe Mm -hmm. you'll be able to be more engaged with Finney and Jean. Because I I think the entitlement or elitism – doesn't pop up as much. It depends on the characters, but I feel like with Ginny, uh, <laughs> I just made a shipper name with Jean and Finney. I don't think that that was at the root of, of who they were. No. Cause, cause if you decided to read, if you decided to reset this novel at a public high school, they'd still be the same people, you know, yeah. he'd, he'd be the star athlete. He'd be the, the, uh, the G- Finney would be the star athlete. Jean would be the brain and they were friends. And, they both have potential to go really, really far. Maybe they're not training for the Olympics, but maybe he's training for a scholarship at UVA or Oregon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or he, he's a runner, right? Yeah. So it would be Oregon or something like that. You know, like one of those NCAA, elite NCAA things. So like you could you could change the context and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a private prep school. Um, but I do like this private prep school setting because you can set up a really good bubble for them. So, but Absolutely. but you could... But I think you're right. The, the the elitistness of it doesn't necessarily, you know, yeah. play I think out. the only time I knew that Gene was rich is because his parents, like, summered in a a southern mm-hmm. town of some sort. Or, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. that might just be where he's from, but it just sounded really I think that's where he's really from. posh. Yeah. yeah. But other than that, I'm like, oh, I feel like these are pretty relatable, even though they go to this swanky school. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All okay. right. Do we have any feedback? I don't necessarily know or think we do. We're going to hold off on feedback. We'll do some feedback next episode. Tom. So I, 
I I went to look for it. I couldn't remember what was in the previous episode and what oh. was not. So I have to I have to dig a little deeper. So yeah, just send us your feedback. We'll 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 read a backlog of it. I know we'll probably have at least one or two comments from Robert Ward and uh, <laughs> maybe a couple of comments from other people. Um, by the way, Alan, in this book, Tess of the Durbervilles oh, is yeah. referenced. They're reading it at one point. So They're there you a go. Of yeah, uh, Jude the Obscure, I think is the they, they're I think they're each reading a Hardy, and yeah. I think the other one's Jude the Obscure, if I'm not mistaken. Right so, up yeah. Alan's alley. Yeah, I know. So Okay, Woo-hoo. well I guess that was easy to skip over, so then the big thing is what are we reading <laughs> next time? Yeah, so um we are we are staying in so I actually did the Twitter poll. Because I had I was split between four books and I, I vaguely described them with, with some silliness. Uh, and I said, so I was decided I was tied with the four or five people who voted in the poll. There were two novels that were, were tied. One was about um, Rich A-Holes in the 1920s and the other one was about uh, dealt with mental health. I flipped a coin and the mental health one won over. We are staying in the Northeast the author is from New England. We are relatively in the same time period, even though most of this takes place in New York City. It is a novel of one in their uh, later adolescence. The, the main character is uh, in, in her 20s. So we're reading a, no- a novel about mental health in the same vein of The Catcher in the Rye, but from a pre- female perspective. Any guesses as to what we're going to be reading next time? The Nanny time? Diaries? No, I honestly have no idea. Over, have I read this before? Do you know? I have no idea, but it is a very well-known novel. In we the are... 20s? No, no, uh, in her 20s. Oh, in her 20s, her 20s. but it could it's be modern time. Because it's not the... Sylvia Plath, is it? It is Sylvia Plath. Oh, we're is it the Bell Jar? <laughs> it's the Bell Jar. Okay. <laughs> we're going to be reading the Bell Jar. Okie dokie. I have read that, so we're, okay. okay. I remember you said you were going to get to that at one point. So here we are. It was published sometime in this. My copy says copyright 1971, but I'm pretty sure it was published prior to that. So we will uh, we will see how it goes. So all right. So yeah, we'll see I'm... how it goes. What an uplifting novel <laughs> that we will be reading next time. Oh Woo-hoo. my heavens. We're reflecting the state of the world around us. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my heavens. Okay. The world is on fire. Let's read some Sylvia Plath. So yeah. until then, we hope that your world is not on fire. We hope that you're doing well. We hope that we see you again next month. So as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And if you're going to challenge someone and walk off on a branch I would suggest maybe having a mattress pad underneath the branch on the bank just for like a backup situation. Or ask yourself, self, do I trust the person that's with me on this branch? And then go out on the branch. Good night. Goodbye! (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two that's two true freaks if you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode follow us on facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with tom and stella if you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com we will read every email we get on future episodes We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode 
or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Don't worry. I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun.